Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation. And wasn't it kind of nice a little bit for Cliff to come in and preach something that's not Revelation? Don't applaud at that, all right? (laughs) I know what it can be like. We're studying the seven years of tribulation. It almost feels like it's been seven years. And then the Antichrist keeps coming up here and teaching. No, I'm just teasing. It's like, it's never going to end. But we're four weeks left in the book of Revelation. We got four weeks left. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's too much for me to cover on a Sunday morning. I can't, so you're just going to have to deal with it, right? No. One of the things I would encourage you is after every Sunday, uh, Monday or Tuesday, we record the breakdown, and we take the sermon, we take the text, and we go a little bit deeper. So sometimes after service, I'll have somebody coming up, you know, the good Bible students, and they're like, oh, you didn't mention much about this or that or this, and it's like, I only get so much time, right? Because we got to beat the Baptist to lunch, right? We only got so much. I can say that. I used to be a Baptist, okay? You're allowed to. They're okay with it. I've asked. It's all, it's all good, okay? So you only got so much time, but on the breakdown, we take some of those things and go a little bit deeper because the one question that I'm always seeking the Lord with when, we're ser- when I'm sermon prepping, Lord, what would edify and encourage the body? I don't want it to just be a geek out session and a seminary class, but how do we edify and encourage the body to keep living for you? How do we keep walking in faith to you? And so four weeks left of Revelation, a lot in these last few chapters. And so if you would read along with me here, Revelation 19, starting verse one. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. 
And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Ah, doesn't that sound good? (laughs) It is the, you know, fall season. My wife has turned our living room, our whole house, into Hobby Lobby. It's all on sale, so swing by, 40% off. You can take whatever you want. And I just thought, you know, we just, you know, like you walk into those houses and they just have that like Bible verse above the mantle. And like, this was on my top list. She didn't want it. I don't know why. All the birds were gorged with their flesh. Like, that's the word of God. So here we are in Revelation 19. It starts with this praise, this rejoicing that we hear in heaven. If you remember a couple weeks ago when we were in Revelation 18, if you look at verse 20, it says, Rejoice over her, this is Babylon, this harlot, the prostitute, because she has fallen. And the saints and the apostles and the prophets, for God has given judgment for her, for you, against her. And so now we hear this praise and this worship that is happening in heaven. And it's a two-parter, one, because of the fall of Babylon. Like there is rejoicing and there will be rejoicing from us when evil is fully handled. It's one of the biggest struggles that we have in our Christian faith right now. I think it's the one question that we as the church need to have a good answer for. If God is so loving and if God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing, then why do bad things happen? Why does evil exist? Why... Why is there cancer in kids? Why is there war? Why is there the death of innocent people? That's a tough question to answer. And even in our theology, as we're walking through and we see different circumstances and situations in life where, okay, this person's been walking with the Lord and and now they're not, and are they saved, are they not? And, And our theology sometimes will get in the way and we struggle and it causes division within the body. We have to always come back to the character of God. See, that's what's key. There's going to be a lot of things in our Christian faith that we don't know. We have to be okay with that. It's actually one of the things that gives me comfort 
Because if I could fully know everything about God, ceases to be God. If this small pea brain can fully understand him, is that really a God that I want to follow? But what do you do about the things that you don't know? Don't let the things that you don't know mess up the things that you do know, right? So I always hold fast, going back to the character of God. What do I know about him? He is good. He is merciful. He is gracious. But he is righteous. And he is just. And no one, no evildoer, no debauchery-causing person, situation, nobody's going to get away with it, right? Nobody's getting away with murder, as we like to say in our phrasing. Nobody's getting away with that. Everybody's going to stand before the Lord. There's nobody going to be in heaven that's like, I can't believe you didn't see me. I lived like that all those years, and I did all these things. And, you know, Jesus, as this righteous judge, he's not going to wink at anybody and be like, I know what you did, but, like, you're in. You're okay. No. He is completely just. He is completely righteous. And there is a day coming that he will absolutely take care of every evildoer. And we hear the rejoicing in that. And here's the thing. If this truly is the word of God, it'll come to pass, will it not? Can we not hold that just as if it's already happened? Is God not that faithful that if he says he will do this, then we, we don't have to ask, I wonder if. No. Our hope, biblical hope, isn't like, oh, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope it doesn't rain on my vacation. That's just earthly hope. Biblical hope is saying, God said it. He is faithful, and it will come to pass. And so we can take these things that have not yet happened, and we can begin praising him for it. That even in us as the church, can begin to worship and praise God for who he is and what he says he will do. And so our hope, our biblical hope, our faith, our trust in him, in part, is that he will bring an end to sin. He will bring an end to suffering. He will bring an end to the evil of this world. And we rejoice in that because so many people ask that question. Well, if God is so good, then evil exists, then he must not. And it's like, key word here, yet. He has not handled it yet. And then we as, you know, good Christians get frustrated with God. And so, well, what's he waiting for? Why is he taking time? Like, I've been suited up, ready to go. I've been following the Lord for years. I'm ready for him to return. Why is he taking so long? I'm just so thankful that he endured while you were not walking with him. Did you ever think about that? It's the same reason when... Uh, you know, people ask me like, hey, pastor, the church is getting a little bit full, running out of seats. I don't like sitting next to these people that I don't know. They kind of smell. What are we going to do about this a little bit? You know, and this is my own wife talking to me. No, she's I'm just joking. Yeah, she's front row too. I got to mind my P's and Q's, right? You know what I mean? I'm just so thankful that when you were trying to find a church home to be a part of, we didn't put a sign on the door that said full, no room for anyone else. And the doors will always be open and I will do as many services as needed so that everyone would have a church home to find biblical fellowship, find the word of God, and find a family to continue walking with Jesus in. 
And so right now, God is faithfully, patiently enduring the evil that is going on, because it's all against him, right? Every sin, every act of debauchery, evil, it's all against him. He is faithfully and patiently enduring all of that. Why? Because at the same time, there are those that are coming to faith in Jesus. I'm going to probably get my numbers mixed up. Go with me. But what I was reading recently, do you know how many people are coming to the Lord just in Africa alone per day? 16,000. Shouldn't our prayer, Lord, one more day. Just wait one more day. If that many people are coming to a saving relationship with you, that their eternal destination is changing from death to life, just wait one more day. And then that small part of our heart is, man, I wish that would happen in America. And so we rejoice knowing that there will come a day. And there's the, there's the bitter sweetness of it, that there is coming a day that he will bring an end to all sin. But then there's the sweetness of it. There's a, another side of the worship. What is it focused on? Not just what he's bringing an end to, but what he is starting. And then we see later, you know, starting in verse 6, kind of one of the main parts of Revelation 19 is the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? And again, like, I grew up Baptist. You brought your Bible and a covered dish, to any church gathering. Amen? Right? Hey, there we go. Like, I want to bring some of that roots back a little bit. And you always knew, like, you would learn who in the congregation, you know, like, certain ladies were really good cooks, and you could tell, you know, you started to memorize what their dishes looked like, and be like, oh, Gertrude's going to be here. That's going to be great. Right? And then the opposite side, you learned who to stay away from. Right? Be like, oh, Ethel's here? I'll eat before we go. Like, you know what I mean? Like, but a marriage supper of the lamb, like I'm, I'm all about a good dinner. Like if you, I, any event, if you have a good meal to it, you, any event's good, as long as there's a good meal to it. So a marriage supper of the lamb, there's actually four distinct steps to the marriage of the lamb. Step one, you have the arrangement and the price paid. Then you have the fetching of the bride. Then you have the wedding ceremony and then the marriage feast. And I'll just go ahead and say it if you want slides. Like all first service was doing one of these things with the cameras. Go right ahead, that's fine. Or we can email them to you. There's, there's technology advances that we have, like email. We could send it to you. So you don't have to have like this like grainy screenshot, but whatever you want. Plus, we got the new projectors. Don't they look good, right? We don't have to break our necks to look over here. I could never see the words for months because I sit right there. It's like so nice to sing along with you guys. But one of the things that God does that in many ways to give us a type of in studying our eschatology. One of the things, like you could study the festivals and the feasts, the Jewish feasts, there's seven of them. Jesus fulfilled three of them in his earthly ministry. Then you have the day of Pentecost with the beginnings of the book of Acts, and there's three more that we're still waiting on that point to certain events of end times, that'd be the rapture and the second coming and whatnot. Like those are, that's a great study to show that he gave us like a foreshadowing, a type of, so that we would know about end times and when these things would happen. Another thing that he gave us that he uses in a sense of an analogy or a symbolism is a Jewish wedding. 
an ancient Jewish wedding. Like if you have Jewish friends, like don't call them and be like, is this what you do at a wedding? Like they don't do that anymore, but an ancient Jewish wedding. So let's talk about it. So an ancient Jewish marriage tradition, this is what it would look like. The groom is going to leave his father's house, right? I have an 18-year-old son. I'm waiting for that groom to leave his father's house, right? <laughs> but he has to leave for the right reasons. Don't just kick him out. He's got to leave for the right reasons. And he's going to purchase you know, he purchases the bride for a price. He's got a buyer, you know, so it's going to be three chickens, five goats, nine cows, depending on how pretty she is, right? Be like, yeah, how about two pigeons? No. All right, here we go. <laughs> that could have been a good thing. All right, so he purchases the bride for a price, and the father of a groom, I'm going to make those arrangements, and I got to pay that, right? So I got to look at this girl and be like, all right, what am I willing, how much cattle am I going to give up for her, right? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> make sure everybody's okay back there. So the father of the groom makes the arrangement and he pays. And the value must be known to the bride. So she might be like, really, three chickens? I'd be like, well, lose your attitude. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> She's got to know. And then he, my son's going to give her a token, right? So like, she, you know, she gets a little present on the deal. She gets a token for this. And the bride must consent. A lot of times we think about arranged marriages that they don't have any kind of say-so in it whatsoever. And it's like, I, we try to tell our kids, like, who knows you guys better than we do? Well, you guys do. I said, all right, then let me make all of your life decisions then, right? Because you will just mess this up. And I got a good thing going with you for, right? And so, but the bride must consent. It's not like modern day, like really bad, like within the religion of Islam, there can be no consensus needed from the bride and you're forced into it. It was never like that in an ancient Jewish wedding. She had to consent. She had to say yes to it. So imagine that, you know, like daughters, your dad comes to you and says, well, there's a, there's a young man that would like to marry you. Oh yeah, who's that? I'd be like, oh, you know, I didn't want to say a name because we have so many names in here. And be like, oh, he's picking on me, you know. Be like, well, Robert would like to marry you. Like, Ew. you know, she could say like, hey, dad, how about you keep looking? You know what I mean? Like a little taller or something. But she had to consent. And so when she consents, the bride is set apart. She's sanctified. And this isn't perfectly in order, but all these things are there. And the groom and the bride, they're going to drink from a cup of wine. And this kind of starts the betrothal and the consummation of the marriage. Right? And we know the betrothal just from the story of Jesus' birth. Mary and Joseph, they were in their betrothal, which means fully legally bounding marriage just without the sexual... Uh, yeah, there you go. Don't make me draw pictures. You know what I mean? Come on. You understand that. So legally they're married just without all the fun parts of it, okay? And so... <laughs> it's God's gift of marriage. Can we not talk about it? You know, is the, thank you. Okay, here we go. In the context of marriage, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. All right, so the betrothal and the consummation of the marriage. So the, the bridegroom would then, so once, you know, the, the, there, was a, there was a covenant that was set, then the bridegroom's like, well, I got to go home and start building onto my father's house and build this marital home, right? And looking at some of the boys we have today, like they couldn't build a fort, and that's kind of scary. Like, you're really going to provide for her? Like, you don't even know how to swing a hammer, Thankfully, the Lord is a carpenter. Here we go. And so the bridegroom uh, goes home. He builds a marital home. And the bridegroom, the bride and the groom, they're going to go through a ritual cleansing period. And then the groom returns for the bride. And he's accompanied by some male escorts. So he's got his boys with him, right? And he's rolling into town. And the exact time is not known in advance. That's set by the father of the groom. So think about it. Like every day, my son would be waking up. Dad, today, 
Can I go get my bride today? They're like, no, you still need to work on your house, man. That's not even set up. You don't even got running water. What are you talking about? Get back working. I'll let you know when. But every day he'd be waking up. Dad, is today the day? Is today the day? We're like, no. And I'd just get to toy with them for years, right? Make them serve me seven years like Laban. No, here we go. But eventually there would be that day to go down and wake my son up, say, hey, Dayton, gas up your car, go get your bride, right? And so then he's going to call his friends because they're all ready and waiting too because they know the time is not set. That's what that one parable was about. We'll talk about that in a second. And so he calls up his, his boys and say, we get to go get her. And so he, they hop in his car and they're flying down Osage Beach Boulevard, right? And he's rolling in, announcing with shouts. He's going to roll down his window, get his chauffeur, the little ram's horn. And he's rolling to the girl's house to go pick her up. Then the bride, he's going to take her, bring her back to my house. And we're going to put her in a bridal chamber. Like we're going to hide her in my house for seven days. And then at the end of that, the bride leaves that bridal chamber and is unveiled in full glory, and then the ceremony goes on. That's an ancient Jewish wedding tradition right there, right? So let's look at how Jesus fulfills this in our eschatology. So here we go. Marriage of the Lamb. Jesus leaves his father's house, right? So, and, and all the verses are there, but I'm not going to read them to you. Again, if you want copies of this, just let me know. So Jesus is going to leave the father's house, the purchasing of the bride for a price, which is his blood. The father made all the arrangements and he is paying for that. That is his will that the son would be on the cross. The value must be known to the bride. We knew that it was going to cost the blood of Jesus. And the token given to us is the Holy Spirit. The bride must consent all through John. It says, whoever would believe we are not forced into a relationship with Jesus. We consent unto that. Then we are set apart and sanctified, kind of a dual process. So obviously the process of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit begins a sanctification process, but there's even another greater kind of culmination to it. Then the groom and the bride, they drank from the cup of wine. That's what communion is almost commemorating, not just the, the death of Jesus and his body and blood, but what do we do? We proclaim his death until... He comes. And so we're in that betrothal period right now, right? We haven't had the consummation of marriage. We're in the betrothal period right now as the bride of Christ with Jesus. But what's he say in John 14? Jesus prepares a place for us. He says, I must go away because I got to prepare a place for you. But take heart, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to come back for you. He doesn't say I'm coming back for the whole world. He says, I'm coming back for you, my bride. And I'm going to call my bride back home to the place that I have prepared for her. And again, we're going to go through ritual cleansing. Jesus, he was baptized, Matthew 3. But also, the judgment seat of Christ. So after our death or rapture of the church, there's going to be a judgment seat of Christ. And, that, and that's where we're going to be dressed in our fine linen that Revelation 19 kind of alludes to. And then Jesus returns again, not in a perfect chronological order, but Jesus returns for the bride, the rapture, which 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, and 1 Thessalonians 4 all are great scripture passages to defend that. The exact time is not known in advance. No one knows the day or the hour except the Father. So think about that. Would an earthly young man be more excited for, to go get his bride than Jesus? Think. Right now, Jesus, Father, 
is today the day that I get to go get my bride? No. But we're waiting. You're right, we are waiting. I mean, think about how excited Jesus is to return for his bride. Like, let that identity of us as the bride of Christ, like, let that truth hit us. That he, in joy and excitement, is yearning to return for us. He's not sitting on the throne and being like, please don't send me to earth again. Like, you remember what happened the first time they did that? You know what I mean? Like, didn't work out too well. Remember the cross? You know, he's like, I want to come for the bride. Send me. He's waiting. And then Jesus' arrival is announced with that shout and a shofar. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, that a shout and a ram's horn, the trumpet. The bride is going to remain hidden in the groom's father's house for seven days. Seven days is one week. We've been talking about a one-week period, Daniel's 70th week, that the church is going to be raptured from the earth and taken, hidden in the father's house. The world's going to wonder, where did all these people go? And then after seven years, that one week of time, Daniel's 70th week, then we return with Christ. We leave that bridal chamber, return with him, unveiled and in full glory, clothed in dazzling whites. So many people look at my eschatology and they say, well, that's just a preconceived idea that you have and then you just use scripture to defend it. And some people do that. Or, and let me defend myself a little bit, or you allow scripture and all the verses, all the pointings and the foreshadowings of feasts and festivals and marriage traditions, you allow the word of God to lead you to those doctrines and those theologies. So when I talk about that the church is going to be raptured and we're not destined for the wrath of God, why? Because he has a better plan for us, that he's going to hide us away so that when he comes in his glory, we come unveiled in that same glory with him. We allow the word of God to lead and guide in that. And so that is the marriage of the Lamb. And we see this then, a picture of Jesus. And this is really hard because, again, a lot of times we want to look at the earthly ministry of Jesus and we want that picture, you know, white skin, long brown hair, blue eyes, just sitting, petting a sheep. And we let, like, the renaissance of art dictate who Jesus is. But how easily do we hold to that? And we take our own preconceived ideas and say, that's who we want Jesus to be. Then we come across passages like this. This is the Jesus we're waiting to return for his bride. The one that's on a white horse called faithful and true with righteousness. He's judging and he's making war. His eyes are like the flame of fire. So it talks about purity and righteousness and judgment. On his head are many diadems. And so he's, he's ruling His clothes is dipped in blood because he's been to battle. He's the word of God. There's armies behind him, which is us. From his mouth comes that sharp sword. He's striking down nations. And on his robe and on his thigh, he's got tatted up. King of kings and Lord of lords. Like this is the Jesus that we're waiting on. If you're waiting on this passive sheep petting dude, you're going to be greatly disappointed and deceived. This is the Jesus that we're waiting on. 
And then we go to a second supper. Revelation talks about this, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in verse 17, it talks about, come, gather for the great supper of God. Right? So there's actually four suppers that are given in Scripture. The first one is the supper of salvation. It was alluded to by Jesus in a parable where he says, hey, there's a man that wants to throw a banquet, a wedding banquet, and he invites all these people to it, but they're like, you know what, I'm busy. I got something on the calendar that day. I'm working. I can't make it. He says, all right, invite everybody else. And then you remember the one part where there's one guy, he's not dressed appropriately for it. So what you wear to the banquet matters. That's the supper of salvation. Then two, you have the supper, the Lord's Supper, the commemoration of Jesus' sacrifice, his body and his blood. A couple weeks ago, we celebrated communion. And then you have the marriage supper of the Lamb, which this is the gathering of the church with Jesus in this marriage celebration. Not to geek out, but a little bit. Between the tribulation, the seven years of tribulation, and the start of the millennial kingdom, there's actually, Daniel chapter 12 tells us that there's 75 days, an interval time between that, right? And the marriage supper of the Lamb is the last event in that 75 days between tribulation and millennium. And then there's one more supper, the great supper of God. And this is a worldwide event. And when you read about it, like, what is this? That an angel's going to come out with sound and trumpet and a loud voice and say, gather for the great supper of God and eat the flesh of everyone. See, this is cleanup after the war from Basra to the valley of Jehoshaphat. We know that when Jesus returns, he's going to go to Basra and he's going to defend the remnants of Israel. And he's going to walk and ride that 1600 stadia all the way to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is that valley right by Jerusalem that's going up to the Mount of Olives. And he, the whole way, is just bringing it against the army, armies battled against him. Now, we're going to be there riding on white horse. How much blood is on us? What's Revelation say? None. We are going to be dazzling and white. Right? It's like that kid that never gets any playing time on the football field. You can just look at them all standing there. It's like dingy, dingy, like really dirty, grass, all that. And a perfectly white uniform. They're like, oh, you must be the snapper. You know, long snapper. There you go. You, you're the punter. You never get to see playing time. That's going to be us. We're the cheerleading squad. He trottens the wine press alone. But he's going to walk that 180-some miles and just bringing war against everybody against him. And think of the destruction and the mess that is left over of everyone that he's going to slay with that sword that comes out of his mouth. You got cleanup crew. And so an angel comes out, calls all the birds, says, gather for the great supper of God. And they're going to gorge themselves, eating the flesh of everyone who is killed, standing against Jesus. I love this quote. <clears throat> Think of the four suppers, right? If you reject the first supper, the supper of salvation, the second supper will mean nothing to you. That if you do not have a faith and a trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, communion, the worst snack time ever. 
a little morsel of bread and a small thing of juice. That's not even a shot, right? What? Pastor said shot? Yeah, I know what those are, right? Like, what is this? It'll mean nothing to us because it's symbolizing something that means nothing to us. And so if you reject the first supper, the second supper will mean nothing to you. Then you will not be present for the third supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everybody gets to attend at least one of these suppers. So you will not be present at the third supper, but you will be present at the fourth. You're invited to one of these tables for dinner. Either some will eat, others will be eaten. Think about that. Like, how significant and serious is this issue? We're, as we're focusing on Jesus, where is he presented in between the marriage supper of the Lamb and the great supper of God? What table are you sitting at for dinner? If you've never put your faith and your trust in Christ, there is an open seat available for you at that table of salvation, that supper of salvation. All you have to do is consent to it. You have to accept that free gift to sit with Jesus for salvation. And maybe you have, but the second supper really doesn't mean a whole lot to you because you're off doing your own thing. Yeah, I gave my life to the Lord. We had a little emotional moment one time when I was at camp or some retreat, but now you would look at your life and you don't see much of it. You need to rededicate and come to that supper of communion and understand the body and the blood of Jesus and what he has secured, what he has paid for, and what is offered unto you himself. He paid the price for you. Because how we handle those first two suppers dictates which ones we're going to be at for the last two. Will we be a part of that bride that he is so eagerly waiting and returning for? That we will have a spot at the marriage supper of the Lamb and be in full communion and unity with our bridegroom? Or are we going to pick up arms stand against him and be invited to the supper, the great supper of God, which I don't know if you read that. I don't know if you caught it. It doesn't end well for them. Either you serve the Lord or you will be served as dinner. This is the word of God. And see, I think one of the biggest issues that we have is Jesus. Go with me. When we started the whole study of Revelation, one of the things that I talked about in the very first wording of the first verse, it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we're so used to that sheep petting Jesus that is this soft and sweet and he would never say anything bad. But even in his earthly ministry, he liked to pick fights with the Pharisees. He wasn't just sitting back being passive. Sometimes he just woke up and thought, you know what? I haven't swung a little bit. Let's get after it. And he would go and pick a fight with them. He's flipping tables. He called one woman a dog. Like, that's in the scriptures? That's in the scriptures. But we're so used to this gentle Jesus that we completely miss truly who he is. Like those uh, Mad Lib games, 
Do you like those Mad Lib? My kids love those, my young daughters. So, you know, it's a paragraph, and then it'll ask you for nouns and verbs and adjectives, and you just throw those out before you know the context, and then they read it to you, and it's funny because you didn't know the context of it. But we try to do the same thing to Jesus. I wanted to make a Mad Lib out of verses 11 to 16. So then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on him is called, I don't want faithful and true Jesus. I went loving and accepting of my sin, Jesus. You know, and in righteousness, he judges. No, no, I want in grace, he'll allow me to do whatever I want. War, I don't need a Jesus that makes war. I want the Jesus of peace and tolerance. His eyes are like the flame of fire. No, I want the puppy dog eyes that just bat his eyes at me no matter what I'm doing. And then he oversees and doesn't look at my sin and doesn't hold me to it, right? And on his head are many diadems. How about just a good backwards baseball cap? I don't need this ruling authority over me. I just want my buddy Jesus. That we just hang out and watch the game and do whatever we want. And his name, yeah, whatever we want to call him, we'll come up with something. His robe dipped in blood, not my Jesus, Right? Could you imagine them making that out of stained glass in the old, old Catholic churches? Like, who's the bloody guy up there? Oh, that's Jesus. I don't know about that one. I don't want that Jesus dipped in blood. I don't want that Jesus is the word of God. I want that Jesus that it's about my emotions and what I feel. I want that Jesus that says, my truth is truth. And whatever I think is right is right. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, too barbaric. He's striking down nations. He's ruling them. We need buddy Jesus. He's trodden the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. I don't want a God of wrath. We want to fill in all the different nouns and verbs and adjectives. So when we get down to the very bottom, on his robe, on his thigh, the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords, I don't want that. I want this cabbage patch doll of Jesus that I can just drag with me and do whatever I want and it's gonna bring no value to my life. See, this is what we try to do is mad lib Jesus. Instead of allowing the word of God to reveal to us who he truly is. See, we cannot allow our need, our desires to define Jesus. We need to come to the word and discover truly who he is, what he has done for us, and what he will be doing. That's what it means when, if you remember when Moses is at that burning bush moment, and Yahweh is talking to him that I believe is pre-incarnate Christ, was in the flaming bush. And he says, I'm supposed to go back to Israel, the children of Israel, and who do I say is their God? And he says, I am who I am, Yahweh. That, that very name of God, that proper name of God, Yahweh, that you can't pronounce with your lips or your tongue, you only do it by your breath. Yahweh, Yahweh. That every time you take a breath in this life, you are speaking the name of God. That he is that close to you. That is who he is. Even Jesus later says, before Abraham, I am. Even when the guards come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, they says, hey, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say? I am. And they fall down at the power of the name of God. That's who he is. 
So many times we have these preconceived false expectations of who we want Jesus to be, and when he fails to meet those, we hurt our own feelings. And in in fullness, we hurt our own faith. And so many people walk away from their faith in Jesus. And here's the honest truth. They never truly had a faith in Jesus. They had a faith in the Jesus that they wanted, a figment of their imagination. We need to seek the scriptures, know him well, not what we think he is, not what the world tells us he is because, oh, the world is not on short supply to try to tell us who Jesus really is. But rarely is that ever from the word of God. And this is why sometimes revelation is such a hard study. We don't want this God of wrath. We don't want this God of judgment. Whole churches pull the idea of the wrath of God out of their worship. We don't want that kind of a God. Then how is he ever going to handle sin? How do we handle large portions of Scripture? And then when we get to descriptions of of who Jesus is, as faithful and true, the Word of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then we find ourselves at a conflict. Because that's not my own personal buddy, Jesus. No. No. It's kind of like in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever seen that. They were talking about the king, the lion. Yes, there's allusions to that. They said, is he good? Absolutely he is good. Is he safe? Who said anything about him being safe? Yes, he is good. And he will absolutely wreck your life. And it's good that he does. That he brings brokenness to us, that we hold fast too much to the things of this world, too much to our own desires, and he needs to break us of that so that we run to him. See, he is who he says he is. That's what it, I am means. And that's why it's so easy to lo- lose faith in Jesus because we never believed truly in him in the first place. We have to know Jesus. I mean, think about how grace and merciful and just caring that this complete transcendent God, completely unlike us, reveals himself to us. Not just, in, you know, we, we talk about creation as being a general revelation. I mean, it's, it's revealed generally to everybody. But the word of God, a special revelation so that we would know exactly who Jesus is. And we're warned about that. He himself tells us that many are going to come in my name and they're going to deceive a lot of people. Why? Because they don't know who I am. And they're going to stay real vague and ambiguous about me. And so the first one that's coming in that's a counterfeit, there's going to be a lot that are going to fall. And then there's going to be another one that's going to come in and a lot are going to fall. But we as the church, as the bride of Christ, we need to know our groom well. So Jesus is revealed to us in his word, not through our wishful thinking. He's revealed to us in his word. Again, how important is the issue? He's revealed to us between what? The marriage supper of the lamb, a beautiful ceremony that I hope we all are a part of. And the other great supper of God, one that I hope none of us have a seat at that dinner table. 
See those Bible in a year plans? I love them. We actually are going to have our own. We're putting together a resource to start the new year to go through the Bible together as a church. They're great. All scripture is profitable. 2 Timothy 3.16. Absolutely. But know Jesus well. Like, I'm one of those that I take notes in my Bible, right? Jesus is okay with it. It's all good. You know where my first notes are at? Not even Genesis. Table of Contents. Right? The whole Old Testament is the preparation for Christ. It's all about him. And then, then the four gospels is the presentation of Christ, that he is presented unto us. Everything that the Old Testament was preparing us for, they're pointing and saying, that's him. Don't miss it. Don't miss it like those that were on the road and laying down palm branches and singing Hosanna only two, six days later saying, crucify him. Don't miss it. He is presented to us in the Gospels. And then the rest of the New Testament is the appropriation of Christ, the very thing Cliff was talking about last week. So know Jesus well. Always come back to the Gospels. I had one professor who would tell me that, like in your own personal study, like go off, study through a book, it's good, see where it's pointing you to Jesus. Even Charles Spurgeon said to preachers, no matter where you're at in Scripture, you know, take that passage and draw a straight line back to the cross and know who Jesus is well. So go study a book, it was good, but always come back to a gospel. Know Jesus well, because Abraham is not the way, the truth, or the life. Moses is not the way, the truth, and the life. Elijah is not the way, the truth, and the life. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, John, not the way, the truth, and the life. But we know those stories well. But who we need to know well is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Know Jesus well. Why? Because as a follower of Jesus, go back to the marriage. We must remember our devotion to our bridegroom as to not commit spiritual adultery against him. I mean, think when Mary became pregnant, what did Joseph first say? He was going to leave her quietly because she had obviously chose someone else. And that's why the angel came and appeared to Joseph and said, no, 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 no. What is, uh, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit inside of her. She has been faithful unto you. We are in the betrothal period right now, legally bound in our marriage to the bridegroom Jesus, and we're just waiting on the consummation of our marriage, looking at this marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we as followers of Jesus have to understand that our lives right now matter because we are in a covenant relationship with him. And there is nothing more that the enemy would love to do than to set all kinds of ugly models and other people to try to get our eyes fixed off of Jesus Unlike the old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, the enemy wants nothing more than us to look anywhere else. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Know him well. Our eternity matters for it. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we just thank you, Lord, that we can open up your word, drink deeply, But more than anything, when we open your word, I pray that we would seek you, Lord. Not our preconceived idea and false expectations of what we want in you and from you, but we would seek you, Lord. Communion 
with the true living God. Give us that kind of faith, that we would be your hands, your feet, your heart to the world around us, to the community that would look at us and not see us, Lord, but they would see you in and through us. Keep working in us like that, knowing that that day is drawing near and we wait with biblical hope until you fetch your bride back home. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen.